Good morning. Uh, Pastor Peter let me know that uh, there's no AC in here, so he warned me to uh, dress appropriately so, so it's nice to be in a button-down shirt, but I am prepared to sweat with you. I think a church that sweats together stays together. Um, Let me read Psalm 125. That's the psalm that we're looking at this morning. So let me read for us, and then we will jump in. A copy of God's Word. Turn to Psalm 125. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let me pray for us one more time and we will jump in. So Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much as my brother just prayed for the perfection of your word. Oh Lord, it's sufficient for all we need and I pray that you would come and feed our souls this morning. Help us to see the beauty and the truth in Psalm 125. Help us to see with clarity what you call us to in Psalm 125. That's to trust you. We're thankful that you are a God who is worthy of our trust. And as we sing already, a God who has demonstrated himself over and over and over again. A God who is trustworthy. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, confession. When I was a child, I was absolutely terrified of my basement. So our basements back in Buffalo, they weren't like the, uh, the basements that you might be accustomed to here in southern Ontario, the plush, refined basements. My basement was basically a dungeon. It was dark. It was danky. Uh, it was dirty. There was exposed concrete. There were spiders everywhere. And I promise you the spiders were the size of small squirrels. They could take you out. Now, I was terrified of the basement, but I was also especially scared of the furnace. The furnace was loud. It fired up abruptly every time I went down there. It felt like when I went down there and I was skittish to go down there, it would just fire up abruptly and it would startle me every single time. And then there was also just something about that strange, orange, fiery glow that came out of the furnace that spooked me out as a kid. But you know when I didn't fear the basement? You know when I wasn't scared of the basement? When I went down there with my dad. My dad was so big and so strong that I knew that I would be okay. I knew that when I was in my dad's presence, when he was down there with me in the basement and I had him to cling to, I had nothing to worry about. When he was there, I had this renewed confidence in him. Oh, dad's here? Let me actually check things out. Let me look around. Dad's here? I don't have to worry. I don't have to be scared. I can have a confidence because my dad is here. This basement all that bad, this basement all that scary, that furnace isn't that terrifying. As my trust and confidence grew in my dad, my fears and anxieties of that basement diminished because I walked in his presence. 
I think the world is like a spiritually dark basement. Think about it. As Christians, we are surrounded by all sorts of evil and wickedness and sin and brokenness. And then on top of this, we face very real enemies, don't we? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of these things, all of these realities, they can be scary. But brothers and sisters, you have an even stronger father who is with you. And you don't have to be scared. You don't have to worry because you can place your confidence in him. So I'm excited to be here this morning to look at Psalm 125 and to remind you today that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the trial, the hardship, the struggle, the unknown, the pain, the loss, and all the ins and and betweens, ins and outs, and ups and downs, and in-betweens, that you can trust God. That you can trust God in the midst of darkness, knowing that darkness itself will not endure. I believe that Psalm 125 answers the question, why should you trust the God of the Bible? And it gives three crystal clear reasons why you as a Christian can have confidence in him. Because he keeps his people secure. Because he won't let darkness endure. Because he is just. Now, before we jump into our first point, I want to give you two points of context to help get our minds and hearts around Psalm 125. First, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that this is a song. Psalms are songs designed to be sung and prayers designed to be prayed. So that means that they're rich with poetry and imagery and musical lyrics and cues. And think about it. What does poetry and music do to your heart? It moves you, does it not? It pierces to the heart, and the Psalms are meant to move you, not just merely inform you intellectually. They're meant to change your emotions, affect your emotions, guide your emotions, help your emotions. They're designed to help you feel differently toward the things of God and God Himself. So if we read the Psalms for mere doctrinal content, I'd argue that we're actually not reading them how they're meant to be read. So I'm praying that you would leave here this morning enlightened through Psalm 125 and that Psalm 125 would be a song of trust that is in your heart and on your tongue. Second point of context here, we're told that the title of Psalm 125 is this, a psalm of ascents. So an ascent is like an act of moving or climbing upward, for example, like the ascent of a mountain. So a song of ascent is like a prayer or a a song that a Hebrew would recite while he is on his way to worship God in his temple in Jerusalem. And so what you have in Psalm 125, and the psalmist is singing and praying a psalm of trust to his God. And he's preparing his own heart to worship his God whom he's about to encounter in Jerusalem. So I think with these two points of context in mind, let's jump to our first point. The first point is this, you can trust the Lord in the midst of darkness because he keeps his people secure. Verses one and two. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So the young adults group at GFC a few weeks ago, we had a little camping trip, and we were talking about this idea of trust. What does it mean to trust? Well, to trust is to have confidence in someone or something. 
It's to possess a firm belief or an unwavering conviction in the reliability or the truth or the strength or the ability of someone or something. To trust is to feel secure. And if you trust someone or something, it means that you're not necessarily concerned about other related things. If we trust the Lord, we don't have to worry about what may come. Let's say you visited a nearby lake on a very stormy day and you went there with a friend and this friend invited you to walk out onto her old rickety boat dock. And now as you're looking at this boat dock, this old rickety boat dock, you're realizing a few things about this dock. You're realizing that there's a, a bunch of wood planks missing and then the dock's not secure in the water. It's bobbing all over the place. And in the midst of this storm, as you're looking out onto this dock, it wouldn't instill much confidence in its ability to hold you, would it? No. But if you were there looking at a dock that is sturdy, stable, strong, and secure, you would have loads of confidence to walk out on that dock, wouldn't you? You'd trust it. You'd walk on out there. And as you walked out there on that boat dock, you'd actually validate the very fact that you do actually trust this dock. After all, you can't say that you trust something unless you act upon that trust. And this is what Psalm 125 is doing. It's... It's calling us to this kind of trust and confidence that doesn't merely talk about trust and confidence, but acts upon it. Let me ask you this question. I think I see, okay, there's a few children in this room, so maybe this is more directed to the kids. Kids, this is a question for you. However, adults, I will let you respond as well. What is one of the most stable, immovable, material objects in our world? You can shout out a few. Okay, way to steal the thunder. Who just said that? Okay, brother, thank you. Mountains, that's the good answer. I thought we would get Jesus, but I guess, yeah, you know, mountains. That's, that's the correct answer that I was looking for. Now, mountains. I like to CrossFit. Some of you probably don't know what CrossFit is. It's a form of working out, which means that I like to lift heavy things. That's weird. Some of you might not understand that. I get that. I enjoy lifting heavy things. Let me ask you this question. If I pushed with all of my might... Do you think that I could move a mountain? No. Some of you are shaking your heads. Okay, good. No. What if I got all the strong dads and soon-to-be dads in this room, and we came together, and we physically pushed against a mountain? Do you think that we can move that mountain? No is the correct answer we're looking for here again. That is correct. No. Now, let me ask you this. If I gathered all the people in this room, better yet, all the people in the world, and if we pushed against a mountain, could we move that mountain? No. Will the mountain ever be moved? No, of course not. And that's what the psalmist is saying here, that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. You will never be moved. Now we have this promise to us as Christians that for those of us who put our faith and trust in God, we'll never be moved. But yet our reality in this broken world is that we as Christians, we often falter. We often stray. We're, we are moved. Right? That's our experience. What are, what are the kind of things that move us? Anxieties, frustrations, unplanned changes, being sinned against, fear of the unknown. Finances is usually a big one. I think some of you younger folks in this room, it might be something like, what am I going to do with my life? Who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? It might even be something like war, political unrest. Maybe it's a kind of persecution in the workplace, or maybe you're ostracized by 
those in your workplace because you're a Christian. And so we're moved. Now, I think in one sense, these anxieties are valid, but we have this promise that even in the face of these things, that we don't have to allow ourselves to be moved, but that we can trust God and put our confidence in him. Now, Mount Zion was a kind of a nickname for Jerusalem. I've been blessed to be in Israel twice. I've actually been here before. It's a beautiful region, but it's also a super rocky and dry and arid region. It feels like everywhere you turn and look, there's another mountain chain, another jagged, rocky hill or mountain. So it's a region that is covered with mountains. Mount Zion, again, I've, I've stood on Mount Zion. Mount Zion isn't a particularly big mountain, but it's a mountain nonetheless. And we just clarified, right? Mountains don't move. They're not shaken. They're stable. They're consistent. They endure. And so you will be like this mountain, which will abide forever. Now, what does it mean to abide forever? Well, to abide means to remain or to dwell with or to continue to exist, meaning you won't be moved, you won't be removed or taken away. You will endure. Now the question I think then arises, well, who is the one who will endure? Who is the one who remains forever? The one who trusts in Yahweh. We've already covered what it means to trust, to have confidence and security in God. Now let's consider the one whom Psalm 125 calls us to trust him. Let us consider whom this God is. This is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal and covenantal name of the God of the Bible. This is the God who chose Israel as his beloved people. The God who is, as we heard earlier, led Moses and Israel out of Egyptian bondage. This is the God who gave Israel their law and invited Israel into covenant with him. And this is the God who declares himself to be in Exodus 33, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And not only is this Israel's God, for us as Christians, this is our God. He is a mighty fortress. He is our tower and our refuge. He is our ever-present help. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. He is almighty, perfect, and good, just, and righteous, and compassionate, eternal, and gracious. And he is our creator, God, who held the oceans together in his hands. And he is the very one who happens to have felt the nails pressed upon his hands. This is Yahweh. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God whom the psalmist is calling you to trust trust him. And he is a trustworthy God. He is the rock of ages. Now think about your Bible reading. A million times over, God demonstrates himself in his word to be a God who is trustworthy. And then I know, think about your experience. I know that there are at least one or two experiences in your life where God has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy in your life. This is the God that Psalm 125 calls you to put your confidence and trust in. Now the second verse demonstrates the same point, but from a different perspective. Verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So let me ask this question. Why will those who trust the Lord remain forever? Because the Lord surrounds his people. 
and keeps them secure with his very own presence. As I mentioned earlier, it's a very rocky and mountainous region. And Mount, Mount Zion is actually surrounded by even bigger mountains. So that makes, think about it, one mountain surrounded by other mountains. That makes Zion particularly secure because of its natural defensibility. Armies would have a very hard time getting to Jerusalem, attacking Jerusalem because of this mountainous terrain. It would be really tough to move an entire army over all of these mountains to get at Jerusalem. So along with this idea of endurance and abiding forever, mountains also connote this idea of assurance and protection. Think about it. Just as these larger mountains surround Jerusalem, which solidifies its security, so the Lord surrounds his people, which solidifies their security. Your security. God's people are secure because God is with his people. God is with you, brother and sister. God is present. His very presence should convey this this strength and confidence for those of us who trust in him. It's just like how when I would walk down in that deep, dark basement, I can have trust. I didn't have to be scared because my dad was there. I don't have to be scared. And even one step further, I can have confidence when I cling to my God. When I cling to my dad in that basement, we can have confidence to cling to God in this life. He is big and strong and trustworthy. The same is true when I think about my dad in that basement and clinging to him. The same is true when I realize how trustworthy my God really is. Again, this is the God of the Bible, the covenant-keeping God, the God who brought me and you into his presence. So think about what that means for you, Christian. He is in you, and you are in him. And from this time forth and forevermore, God will intimately dwell with his people. God will intimately dwell with you. Again, think about that. As the people of God, you have a promise that you are surrounded by God. I don't think anything should instill more confidence in this very fact that we are surrounded by the God of the Bible that his presence will keep you secure, and that nothing can pluck you out of his hand. In the 5th century, in the 5th century, a young Roman citizen named Patrick was captured by Irish pirates when he was 16 years old. After six years of slavery, he escaped back to his family, and though he was back with his family and lived with his family for 15, 20 years, he felt this sense in his heart that God was calling him back to Ireland, back to the very land where the people came from that captured him and kept him as a slave. So with the Roman Empire falling apart during this time that was behind him, and an entire island full of wild Irish savages in front of him, Patrick held this fierce confidence in the Lord that propelled him to share the gospel in Ireland. After 30 years of really intense ministry, ministering amongst these Irish savages that captured him and tortured him when he was there. After 30 years of laboring, God eventually changed the spiritual landscape in Ireland altogether. So we obviously know this man as St. Patrick, but what gave him this confidence? What gave him this trust? Well, I want you to hear from him. These are his words written down. This is what he says. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me. 
God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me. Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. I arise today through a mighty strength, says St. Patrick. I'd argue that this is a man who knew his God and knew the strength of his God. And because he had a proper understanding of the strength of his God, could have confidence in his God. He understood and knew to the core of his soul that God is a trustworthy God that will keep him. So I want to encourage you, saints, practice trusting God this week. Practice putting your trust and confidence in him with your finances. Trust him with your children. Trust him with your future. Trust him in the face of the fear of the unknown. Trust him when you're prone to keep control in moments of anxiety, worry, doubt, or fear. Practice putting your trust in our God. And when those feelings of emotions, of anxiousness arise in your heart, bring them to the Lord and ask him for help in prayer. And if you're struggling with that, and if if you're sinning in a lack of trust, go to him, confess, repent, and say to him, God, help me to trust you this week. Give me the grace that I need to put my confidence in you. I often think of the man who came to Jesus in the Gospels and says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That is a prayer that God will delight to answer. Saints, you can trust God in the midst of darkness because he will always keep his people secure. Secondly, you can trust God because he will not let darkness endure. Verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. I think when you open your Bibles or think about the history of Israel, you're going to see a lot of hardships and strife with many physical enemies. Those from with outside the boundaries of Israel and even those wicked kings from within the bounds of Israel who ruled over them. And at times, these, these external enemies, they, they invaded the lands of Israel. And even at times, these enemies, these wicked kings would capture Jerusalem and the inhabitants and exile the Israelites to distant lands. So Israel's history was one marked by strife and persecution. But in verse 3 here, the psalmist encourages Israel with the promise that the wicked won't always endure. The wicked won't always rule over them. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. It shall not rest. Now a scepter was a ruling stick of a king, and it was a symbol of his rule and his authority to see the king's scepters, to see the king himself. So the psalmist is saying, hey Israel, don't worry. The scepter of the wicked won't always rest on you. Meaning, don't worry, you won't always be oppressed by wicked rulers. 
Hey, Israel, things might look bleak from time to time, but you won't always be pestered by wicked military powers like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. You won't always be oppressed by your own evil, wicked kings. They won't always oppress your people. They won't always torture you. They won't always mock you and your God. And they won't always rule over your land. Hey, Israel, don't worry. Hardship and evil and wickedness won't always endure. Spurgeon declared, God has set a limit to the woes of his chosen. Think about this. Though Israel was held captive for 400 years, God eventually broke their bonds and delivered them. Though Israel was exiled into distant lands, God eventually brought them home. Though they were stripped away from their promised land, God promised to give them a hope and a future. And I think a history of God's saints validates this too. The rest, the rod, didn't rest on Job, did it? Though he was stricken of everything by the devil himself, God eventually restored him. The same is true for Joseph and Daniel. And think even about Christ himself. Though his captors beat him and mocked him and put him to death, the rod of wickedness did not rest upon him. We know the story of Christ. He rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father in victory. And all of the martyrs of the church, from the early church to this present time, though they faced death, were granted eternal life with God because of Jesus. And so here the psalmist says, God says, this evil, this wickedness, this oppressive rule will not always endure. And it won't endure. Here's why. It won't endure because the Lord is concerned about the conduct of the righteous. The Lord is concerned about the conduct of his people. He is concerned to keep his people. The text says, wicked oppression will not endure, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. What does this mean? It means that God prevents wickedness from enduring in order to keep his righteous ones from swaying into sin. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says this, bad company corrupts good character. So even through wicked oppression, the righteousness can be influenced in a negative direction. And yet we know, as we prayed earlier, the good shepherd responds. The good shepherd, the God of the Bible, is not willing that any of his sheep would be lost or led astray. And so he intervenes, does he not? This is what the God of the Bible does. He constantly intervenes into the brokenness of this world. And he responds. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you think, okay, I, I can see where, as I read the Bible, where God responded to the wickedness in Israel, but, but what about today? Where, where is he at right now? It feels like we're surrounded by so much brokenness. As I look into the world, as I open the newspaper, as I look into the media and the social media, I see so much wickedness and evil and brokenness. Where is God at? Has he responded? And I would say this, yes, Satan the great deceiver of this world, has for a time been allowed to rest his scepter of wickedness upon this world, causing all sorts of havoc and sin. But I would point you to two realities that demonstrate that God has responded to this wickedness and will respond to ultimate evil. 
The first is this. God has responded by sending his very son to the cross. We can breeze past that truth because we as Christians are, are, are so aware of what, of what Jesus did there. But think about that. That God looked down upon his creation and the muck and the mire of this world amidst brokenness and sin. And he loved us so much that he would send his own son to the cross. And there, when we think about the cross, Christ defeated our greatest, our greatest adversaries, did he not? Satan, death, grave itself. And, and for us as Christians, by putting our faith and trust in him, he saves us not only from our own sin, but from an eternity of darkness separated from him. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The King of kings and the Lord of lords stooped down to this world. Jesus came to rescue us from our spiritual sin and from the spiritual darkness of this deep, dark, dank basement. And so our sin, our sin in the darkness within our own hearts was atoned for by our Savior. God speaks to the heart of the issue, our very hearts itself, and he sends his son. And so Jesus comes as the crucified lamb. But the second reality is this, I will point you to that. Jesus will one day return, not as the crucified lamb, but will return as the conquering king. And upon his return is a dreadful reckoning. Now for his people, it will be a beautiful thing as we respond and worship the Lord and welcome him with joy. He will once and for all wipe away every tear, right every wrong, and bring ultimate comfort for us as his sons and daughters, but for his enemies. For those who have oppressed his righteous ones. For those who have no regard for his name. For those who ultimately reject God. He will bring ultimate justice. He will wipe away his enemies and his recompense and his justice will be severe. You might think, well, how severe? Revelation chapter 6. And on that day, when Jesus returns, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. Who can stand? So Revelation 6 gives us a glimpse of this terrifying day of when Christ returns. And the justice seen on this day of wrath will be so severe that those who have aligned themselves against God will literally be crying out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us so that we don't have to face that wrath. This will be a, a dreadful day for those who are separated from Christ. But for Christians, it will be a blessed day. Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. For those of us who belong to Christ, we have this promise. 
that darkness and evil will not endure because darkness and evil was and will be defeated by our conquering king. And so for us as Christians, though it feels like we are surrounded by darkness, darkness in this present world, I want you to take heart. I want you to take heart because darkness will not have a lasting foothold. So Christians, persevere because God will not let darkness endure. Thirdly, let's keep moving. Thirdly, you can trust God because he is just. Verses four and five. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So verse four begins with a prayer. The psalmist prays that God will do good to those who are good and upright in heart. So who is good and upright in heart? Well, here I think the context of the psalm actually answers this question. In verse one, those who are good are those who trust God. In verse two, those who are good are the Lord's people. In verse three, those who are good are the righteous. In verse four, those who are good are the upright in heart. So the word upright here, It can carry the connotation to be straight or level or right or pleasing in the sight of someone or something. So it means to have a heart that is pleasing in the sight of God, which means that the upright in heart are those who trust God and walk with him in integrity and heart. Question, how do you get a heart that is pleasing to the Lord? Well, you have to have a heart that trusts him. Like the Old Testament St. Abraham in Romans 4, verses 3 and 5, says this, Paul the Apostle, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I believe that this is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament gospel, the very idea that God has saved sinners, gives them a new heart, and reconciles them to himself through him. So the good person here, the good person here in the psalm is not good in of himself, nor does he somehow earn God's favor by external acts, but his heart is made good through the goodness of another. And he is brought near to the Lord by the very trust that he places in him, by the trust that he places in his God. So this is the person whom God will bring near to him, the person who is in right relationship with him. This is the person whom God will do good to. He is the covenant-keeping God, ever faithful to his people. We have a prayer here, and I believe that this prayer teaches us something. I believe that it teaches us that we can be both confident in the Lord and trust him and place our faith and trust in him while also fervently asking him for help. So we as Christians can place our trust and confidence in him by actually asking him for his blessing. Trust in the Lord by seeking him with urgency and fervency. Trust in God looks like believing prayer. Nothing says I trust you more when we say we're coming to him and recognizing that he alone has what we need. And so we look to him as Christians. I believe that this becomes a wonderful prayer for us as the people of God to pray because God is just 
and he will be just to his people and good to his people. On the other side of that, because he is just, that also means that he will bring judgment to the wicked. He will by no means clear the guilty, Exodus 33 says. And so verse 5 is a warning. Again, verse 5, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. So if you caught it in verse 1, those who trust in the Lord will never be moved. But in verse 5, those who are wicked are carried away. And so we've had this contrast all throughout the psalm. All throughout the psalm, we have the people who belong to God and those who do not. Those who trust God and those who do not. Those whom God surrounds and those whom he doesn't surround. You have the wicked and the righteous. You have the good and the upright in heart. And then you have those who turn aside and are crooked in their ways. And so while God protects all those who draw near to him and place their faith and trust in him, you also have this warning here that God will eventually lead away all those who turn away from him and turn aside to their own sinful ways. It says here that they will, God will banish them forever. Now there's some heaviness here. When I was studying uh, two weeks ago, last week, I realized how beautiful this psalm is. It's a very simple psalm, but it's beautiful and powerful. And it demonstrates to me that this is a God that I can put my faith and trust in. So it helps me as a Christian. But as I was studying, I also realized how severe the truth of this psalm is for those who turn away from God. And so, friend, if that's you here this morning, if you do not know God through Christ, then I want to beg of you to come to him this morning. See, apart from Christ's righteous robes, you stand separated from God and condemned in your sin. But the story does not stop there. The beauty of the gospel is right here for you today. And that there is forgiveness accessible to you here today in Christ. You don't have to worry about cleaning yourself up, pretending to be righteous because you will never be, never be perfect in the sight of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. So if you stand separated from God, condemned in your sin, run to Christ, who will welcome you and receive you and give you your righteous robes. So don't turn away or turn aside from God. Turn away and turn aside from your crooked ways and turn to him. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ has come to help sick and broken sinners and to reconcile us back to himself. This is the greatest news in all of history. We as Christians, we regularly take the Lord's Supper, right? We're familiar with that. This is where we as Christians remember and reflect upon what Christ has done for us at the cross. We take the juice, which symbolizes and represents the blood of Jesus spilled for the purification of sins. And then we take that little wafer, which represents the body of Jesus sacrificed for us. This is a picture of the gospel, that Christ died in my place, that Christ died in the place of sinners. And it's only through this gospel 
that we, that you may have for, for, excuse me, may have forgiveness of your sins. And it's only through this gospel that you may have access to God. And it's only through this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may have peace with God and peace for your heart. And thus, it is only through this gospel where you can pray the last line of this song, peace be upon Israel. That is, peace be upon the people of God who belong to him through faith. If you stand apart from Christ, apart from God, then friend, you need the goodness of another. You need the goodness of Christ's righteous robes to dawn on yourself, which will bring you into the presence of God forever. I mentioned at the beginning that this is a psalm of ascents. So the Israelite pilgrim is making his way to Jerusalem, to the temple, to to meet with his God, to be in his presence, to worship his God. Well, saints of Royal York and all those who belong to Christ's kingdom, you are pilgrims too. You're making your way through this life to your promised land, which is life with God everlasting. And in this world, as a part of your journey, you will sojourn in darkness. You will walk in darkness. But darkness will not endure. And the scepter of wickedness will not rest upon you. Because your father is with you in the basement, fixing the lights, surrounding you with his presence, keeping back the darkness. And this is your ever-faithful, ever-strong God who you can put your trust in who you can place your confidence in forever. This is the God that you walk with. Let me pray for us. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this simple but beautiful truth in Psalm 125 that you are a God whom we can trust even in the midst of darkness. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross for us. We thank you for being perfect and laying your life down as the sacrificial lamb, that you would spill your blood for us, that you would grant us forgiveness and peace, that you would demonstrate that you are a trustworthy God because you would lay your life down for your people. So I pray for us here today, that you would help us, help us to practice trusting you and placing our confidence in you, even in the midst of darkness. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.